0: This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation.
1: Hello, welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. This is Season 5, Episode 2. My name is Shannon Betts, and I'm here with Mary Sagafi and a special guest that we're going to introduce in a second. And today we are talking about a topic that we've wanted to cover for a while in the podcast, and it is supporting English language learners. You know that I have a lot of experience teaching ESOL students or ELL students. And I've spoken with that, like sprinkled in throughout our conversations, but the entire topic today is gonna be about supporting English language learners. So we are so happy to have our guest here, whose name is Stephanie Jones-Voe. Wonderful, thank you so
2: much, Shannon. Thank you for having me, Mary and Shannon. Um, It's a pleasure to be with the Reading Teachers Lounge. Um, In terms of why I am here, I guess I've been asked to share what got me to this point, and I'll just briefly go over it, because when you're a certain age, it takes a moment, but I'll just enumerate a few roles, including K-12 ESOL teacher and founder of an ESL program, a professor of university classes for teacher endorsement and ESL endorsement in particular. I've been an ESOL and Title III consultant for our state, a professional developer of school staffs, author of journal articles magazine articles online encyclopedia contributions book chapters and professional books and a teacher and sponsor of refugee youth families and adults while in those capacity i have served on a statewide literacy communi- uh, committee which provided esl perspective to curriculum development for our k-12 schools um, in the state and I'm not referring to Georgia, but rather um, a Midwestern state where I lived for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So that was the frame of my experience. But actually, the most important experience that I had was not in my day job, as many of you can probably identify mm-hmm. with it. I taught ESL for entry into career-based education programs, including ESL for certified nursing assistants. ESL for welding, ESL for heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, for which I'm a a curious, um, now quasi expert, (laughs) Uh, workplace ESL and citizenship for hospitality and manufacturing industries. It was this work with the most diverse group of refugees and recent arrivers to our state, that truly made me an advocate and a better understander of what is different for teaching reading to English learners and truly was the cause of many of my frustrations in the formal school setting when all of these understandings which which I had only on weekends and night classes of my interactions with such students really come to fully grasp. and led me to several realizations, which hopefully we'll get to um, as we move through our podcast today. Uh, If I could just share one or two examples about what I'm talking about. So for example, um, in the ESL for Certified Nursing Assistance class, which they would take prior to entering the full-blown program for CNA and follow the same state board certification as other students, I was stunned to find in my class one evening, a young woman who was from Iraq and also was an MD. Now think about this for a moment. She's a physician from her country who, as a result of war and refugee resettlement, is now in a classroom with many others seeking to start some kind of means to support themselves And she finds herself in my CNA class uh, starting entirely over. As I said to her at that time, I will sit down and you can teach this class. This woman had qualifications, right? She really knew what she was doing. The gifts that she brought to that class were stunning and humbling, Mm. to say the least, for me. So that was one example. And she powered through and prevailed and... um, Another example includes a number of Sudanese young women who were in my adult class of ESL, just ESL. It wasn't a career yet, but it was learning English. They had just arrived and been through many experiences, including trauma, separation, loss, the full menu of things that uproot people. And it was, um, decided they could they could uh, benefit from beginning ESL. However, what was not taken into consideration is that some of them had, at the ages of 20s and 30s, never been in a school, and mm-hmm. therefore were not literate in their own language, certainly not in English either, mm-hmm. um, while others had been in school. And this presented an entire different inappropriate lens to what I was expected to do at that time, frustration and different curricula and just a lot of different experiential things needed to happen. So these are two of the framing experiences. And I think I do have hundreds, but lest we, um, less we digress, let us, <laughs> let us continue with our podcast.
0: Well, Stephanie, I'm so happy to have you on our show today because obviously you bring um, such a unique perspective that I don't think is often discussed enough um, across schools throughout America, because I think that, um, and other countries as well. Um, And that is because uh, we're so focused on students who are ages five through 18. Um, But you're right, each brain is very unique. And we talk about children's brains growing and changing, but when you're an adult, um, who doesn't have these foundational skills as well, you still are an adult without foundational skills. Um, you may have some other skills, but um, I'm sure that uh, we can talk a lot about what the reading brain looks like, um, because you can see that with through being, uh, being able to articulate it with adults. Um, and we know that everyone does learn to read in a systematic and explicit way, but it It's not learned unless it's very explicit, unless it is something that is taught in a sequential way. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about how the science of reading um, intersects with your experience with these EL learners. Thanks thanks for coming today.
2: Thank you so much. Um, You know, and this might be a good moment for me to also mention the realization born of this to me, which was grade level reading and grade level Yes. level and age what is it really and the lines of those distinctions disappear when you have an Iraqi woman who cannot do her her medical tests in English but certainly she has prevailed and earned her accreditations in Arabic so how do we factor that in and what does that do to make reading easier if that explicit literacy system is already in place in her Arabic brain. And will it then transfer more quickly to her English brain? And I think we know the answer to that is, yes, it will. Yes. It also means that we have a lot more work to do with our friends who have not been to school yet at the advanced stages of 20 and 30, not to discount them.
0: No, no, not at all.
2: Um, I will share one more thing. And that is In looking at the kindergarten curriculum and the standards that are expected to be met by a kindergartner recently, and printing it off, in fact, to to reach a stack of, I mean, really a thick stack of- A lot of skills. Yes. A lot of skills. And with this in mind, I juxtaposed my Iraqi MD next to this. And I thought, oh my gosh, she has not prevailed in kindergarten. Hmm. So that takes us to another look of how are we going to grade her? How are we going to assess her? How do we look at her progress in this language? Using the same system for that assessment is completely
0: inappropriate
2: and <laughs> invalid, right? The sure. scores are going to be very very different and not able to be readily interpreted if we have an EL. They're not going to have the same meaning if it is an EL. I feel I'm getting on my high horse already, but no. um,
0: we get passionate for- about our, our, <laughs> our projects here. This is, it. and we're talking about critical life skills. So um, I have, I often get that way too, when I'm speaking about literacy and um, we had uh, another guest on um, Heidi, um,
1: Martin.
0: Heidi Martin. Thank you. Uh, I, and she has a project called literacy and justice for all. And um, it just that phrase is just so powerful to me because I do feel like it is a right to learn to read and and teachers deserve all of the support that they can get to ensure that all of our learners, no matter how diverse they are, um, should be able to help them reach these these um, goals and foundational skills so that they can then pursue their hopes, desires and dreams.
2: Absolutely. And I have found so many teachers who are of that mind, they want to do it, of course, but in their preparation programs, there may be something lacking that, that, sh- that shows them, you know, some insights into ways they can apply things, strategies and techniques, and uh, even book selection, etc. And we their- want
1: them to learn yes. to read with, with dignity And so that we recognize, like you did with your Iraqi doctor student, that she has so many gifts and intelligence and skills in her native language. Just because she's lacking in the English doesn't mean she's lacking. If I went to Russia, I hopefully would not be treated as lacking just because I don't have the Russian, even though I have all the experience that I have. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of, the reason I know Stephanie is because we have been fortunate enough at the private school that I'm working at this year is that she's actually working with us as a consultant to help us with our students um, succeed because we have a lot of English language learners at my private school. And Stephanie is an author of many books, but one of them is about differentiation. the english language learners and we have hired her to help us differentiate as teachers for our students and she and i were talking this week about i have a student in eighth grade who's pretty new to the country and she is extremely literate in her current language but not in english and when i told her i was going to start pulling her to work with english she teared up and got really sad and the shame sort of coming and i was like don't Stuff. No, (laughs) you know how to read and write in your own language. Like, English is going to come pretty quickly. Like, just let me help you with it. And then you're going to feel really confident in all your subjects.
2: You know, that's a beautiful thing, Shannon, because not only does she have skills that are pre existing, a a literacy system to draw upon and transfer, but she also has you and all of the teachers there who understand that and are going to support her to that end. You know, in eighth grade, this is when we see a um, epidemic, an epidemic of students who drop out when they can't read, they're below grade level, particularly many Spanish speaking students right now will decide at that point, I cannot do this. And honestly, many calls that I would receive from schools at help, what are we doing? We need a consultation about this student who is way below grade level, who does not seem motivated at all. what is the root? The root is, you can tell me, cannot read. Um
0: I feel shame
2: no because second grade,
1: third grade reading level of English, in- of English text. Of English text. Yes, yes. Which is their second language. Precisely. So can you help like the listeners understand a little bit about what you've helped us at our school understand about how do we how do we know these levels of these English language learners? Like, is there a system that even defines it so that I can understand my eighth grader where she is and then where I'm bringing her?
2: Yes. I would say the preeminent way to understand um, it has been developed under the leadership of WIDA, W-I-D-A. And, In some ways, it's not rocket science to consider that language develops gradually over time, step by step. And so they've divided out into six levels, one through six. And from that, we disaggregate the four domains of language, listening, speaking, reading, and writing, and we can gauge how each one of them is developing along each of the six Levels by characteristics that the students can reflect. So anyone who would like to see a more explicit description can go online to the WIDA website, and you can look at grade level even, bands of what students can do at various grade levels. And of course, that assumes that they are on the correct grade band, are they? Or are they, uh, such as my Sudanese student who wouldn't fit in the right grade band? In other words, wouldn't be performing what it says that an eighth grade student should be able to do yet. Mm-hmm. But we could go back, back, back and locate the spot based on an assessment that is tied to those levels. So the federal government requires that every English learner be assessed annually with an English language development assessment. Uh, And WIDA has a consortium of states and also international entities who um, are members that administer this particular test. Schools receive the data after students have taken the test and they are free then to use that data to decide What level is my student currently in listening, speaking, reading, and writing? And what steps can I take or what scaffolds can I provide to boost them up to the next level? And therefore, we see the progression of language acquisition. That means every teacher can be a language teacher. But it also means that the data from language learners, in particular, we do use as the access test. And other states have their own tests. Tests, such as Texas has theirs, New York has theirs, California has theirs, but um, in fact, most states are members of the WIDA consortium. So whichever test you use, they're all based on this level system with students receiving scores telling you where they fall. The data can be considered at data conversation, data meetings that staff have and discuss students and what can we do for this student needs to be integrated into that general pool of data like map data mm-hmm. or uh, some schools give ITBS like that data. Because an ITBS test for a student who is an EL may need to be interpreted differently than for a non-EL. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes tests can be not only a test of content, but for language learners, uh, those high stake tests are a test of language. How well can they understand it and are they able to reflect what they know about content uh, with that level of language? So things to bear in mind regarding ELs and interpretation and utilization in the district of EL test data.
1: Oh, I'm thinking of that example you gave um, in our training about the math question about outfits. Oh, great,
2: great, great. Yeah, point. can you
1: can you tell the listeners about that math yeah. question?
2: So on a high stakes test, the question appeared for this third grade class. Um, and afterwards the teachers were analyzing uh, the scores and the questions, et cetera. And uh, one very good math student, surprised her teacher by missing a particular question. And so upon investigation, the teacher discovered that the question said something like, Mary has five blouses and seven pair of pants. Mm -hmm. How many outfits can she make? (sighs) Well, Mary missed the question. Not because she didn't know the combinations and the math, solutions but because she didn't know what's an outfit
1: right
2: so it was a vocabulary problem that led us down Mm -hmm. the path to oh incorrect content knowledge Mm -hmm. very important fact to enter into interpretation
0: Mm um i'm i'm really curious um what can be done when you have um like, so, once a teacher encounters things like this, so I've done an investigation, and I realized that my EL student missed the content. Obviously, I'm going to reteach it and teach that vocabulary. But um, how can you reach out to curriculum companies or to the administrators or whoever is creating the test to bring this to their attention? Is there a way to to do that? Um, well, can you give an example?
1: Um, yes. Doesn't politics come in? Sorry. Yes. In
2: a way that I never realized existed until I, (laughs) I didn't realize
0: how to, to what extent they're
1: on American soil. They need to learn English. Sorry.
0: (laughs) I've heard that before. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, so
2: that was where my role was truly, um, I think, uh, brought to, my realization in terms of, oh, this is rocket science, evidently, because over history, if we look at the science of reading, and we look at the books and the articles and the scholars who have developed it, and we're talking, I mean, you know more than I, let's say a few names, like- uh, Marilyn
1: Adams, no Duke.
2: Yes, Fontes uh, and
1: Wiley Blevins. Yeah. They're here. So
2: wonderful, wonderful people and wonderful programs. And yet, if we think when at the time that things have been being developed, have English learners been included? Have they been normed into the research, into the data? The answer is no.
1: Yeah.
2: And so with my... One-
0: I think what we're kind of getting at, too, is based on their own perspective and their own cultural norms they're creating these tests sometimes without consideration correct is that where we're kind of going with this consideration of not understanding this because it's just part of our that we
1: have a diverse country that you know we're not living in this bubble like we Mm. actually it's a large percentage of our of our public school students that are English language learners. So interesting. It's the fastest growing segment
2: in the country as well, exactly. right? Exactly.
0: Correct. Right.
2: So, so what we want to do is is give absolutely due credit and appreciation for their contributions at the time, mm-hmm. which were perhaps just spot on, when the okay. classes were more homogeneous.
0: Let's see. Um, mm-hmm.
2: I I have participated in many professional developments as a learner when data was cited as why why is this a good strategy why why this 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 and they would cite researchers and synthesizers of research and say this is best for students however when asked have english learners been included in the norming of this particular assessment no no but it's overwhelming with students in general and i think we need to ask those questions increasingly
1: I think that's what I'm
0: kind of getting at is that like don't be afraid to start asking questions when you notice that something is wrong. There's there's kind ways to ask questions and there's kind ways to be included. Doesn't mean you have to go knocking down the door and and
1: <laughs> you know. Um, it might, Mary. It might. Well,
0: yeah, you know what? You're right. Sometimes Things get there's done when a... you. Do
1: that. Well, <laughs> no, I'll give an example here in Georgia. Like when I first started teaching in 2002. The English language learners had three years um, where they didn't have to take the state test. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then uh, somehow within the next decade, it went to it went to less than a year. Like if they came in like May, Mm -hmm. they had to take the state test the next school year. If they were just in the school at the previous school year, grade level
2: level state test, right? Yes, the grade
1: level state test. Mm -hmm. And those scores were included in our school report card, they were included in everything. And I just thought it was just I think I think it's the worst policy. And it's yeah. so unfair. I would not want to be included in the Russian like right eight level test, you know, or any other language that I have no experience in. And I, I, I talk about this a lot. And so spoke about it with a local politician he was the mayor of the refugee um city where the students lived and he heard me say it so much that one time he got stuck in the elevator with the governor of georgia and he brought it up oh wow yay (laughs) The was like we'll think about it you know nothing's Mm -hmm. happened like and then you know there was an election so it changed but like we do need to at least bring these things aware like like ask somebody like okay think about it just logically like, if you were in that sure. position, would you be ready to take a state test, a high-stakes test? Exactly. Within, with less than a year of experience in that well, moment? And like, think no. about
2: the fallout for schools, who many of yes. them have been very high-performing schools with uh, homogeneous makeup. And then, oh, there's an influx of language learners from somewhere. And let's say we have several students like our eighth grader. Uh, who is on grade level in Mexico in Spanish. But, oh, my goodness, in eighth grade now, she has to take the state test, perhaps. Um, And what happens to the ranking of the school? Which means now teachers are feeling, oh, it looks like we're not doing our jobs and our school status is declining. And I've experienced this over and over. Why does that have to be? If we have students who need more, why why does our hard work not get to be validated in measures and in incremental ways rather than grade level ways correct if students are going to advance in their levels of language development if we if we if we advance one level in a year that's pretty much lightning speed so we need to be understanding of that. We need to be patient and we need to be reactive, proactive in terms of helping that to accelerate, but celebrate the victories and the advances, not penalize. Oh my goodness, they are below grade level. In fact, research shows us that language learners have to make up multiple years in the space of one year in order to catch up and get on grade level.
1: Wow! Celebrate that. that is- in truth, they're the hardest working students in our school building. Okay.
2: In fact, Deborah Short of uh, SIAP fame ha- wrote a report for the Carnegie Corporation entitled Double the Work, dedicated to that very notion that language learners that are learning not only the content in all of our content and grade level classes, but also the English language. And that is a tall order two at a time.
1: And they need to know the English language for the input of that knowledge and then also for the output of that knowledge. Like they have to be able to retrieve it in their memory and -hmm. be able to articulate what they know about that content. Yes, so let me mention- a lot.
2: That is an outstanding point. So I think something very overlooked and disregarded would be the first five years of English language development that non-EELs typically often are blessed with.
1: Mm-hmm. And that
2: includes time in utero where research shows fetus, baby, can hear. And they're hearing English language. In fact, immediately upon birth, they can discern who has the high-pitched voice and they choose to turn toward that one most uh, in most prevalently, mm-hmm. and who has the deeper voice, which they turn to um, alternately, but they recognize the sounds already day one. So we go from there to hearing more and more cadence and sounds and articulations and practicing of the, and, you know, until we get to kindergarten, fast forward to kindergarten. <laughs> and students arrive at the kindergarten door who are non-ELs, with a repertoire, and as you made the distinction, Shannon, it's important to note, receptive and productive. So put those together, they've got about 5,000 words very often under their belt, 5,000 words, not that they're saying, but that they can recognize or figure out or respond to. And then let's just say we have an English learner who just arrived from pick any country where, where we might have one. They're in the kindergarten classroom, And how many words in English do they know? Theoretically zero. All right. Mm -hmm. So day one of kindergarten, we have a 5,000 vocabulary word deficit. And I never use the word deficit, except in this case, well, um, yes, it's something that we need to remedy, that we need to give them tools to catch up quick, 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 quick. So when we talk about what do we need to do first, yeah. For those little ones who are still processing the single words, it's a wonderful gift that they are at those early levels. When most strategies that we do are for non-ELs and ELs overlap in terms of their efficacy right. and do it, do it, do it. Interactions, play, playmates. I had um, one parent who had adopted an international uh, child and wanted to get a tutor and start this child on some rigorous um, language development in kindergarten. In my opinion, the best thing at this that point would be to have some regularly scheduled play dates
0: mm-hmm.
2: and get the language orally going first. And um, that will naturally transition, naturally, as language development does. Um, to increasing language stamina.
1: I'm going to share a personal anecdote that I've never shared on the podcast before, but I was actually an English learner student, um, in fifth grade. I, um, because of family circumstances, I ended up enrolling in a school in France uh, for about three months, like at the end of the year, like March, April, and May of my fifth grade year. And I had spoken French sort of, I had a lot more receptive language because my mom was a French professor. So I'd heard her speak French my whole life. And I would visited France a few years with her in the summer. So I kind of had some conversational French, oh, but wow. when I was at this um, school, it was an international school in France. So I had um, certain days where English classes and certain days were French classes, but I caught up the most in French on the playground. And mm-hmm. I have a distinct memory of myself because I wanted to keep up socially and have friendships at the school, I remember just like speaking in French fluently on the playground, telling my friend a story somewhere that French is still in my head. I mean, because it was there, you know, and I I got it quickly within a few months because I was so motivated socially to speak to my peers.
2: Yes. And you had the literacy in place. In English, too, already. Correct, correct.
1: So I sort of had the, for a while, I remember kind of translating back and forth, like, okay, this is the English meaning of it. Okay, let me, how do do I describe it in French? But then towards the end of that experience, I thought in French, like when I would be thinking about what I'd learned in school, I would think in French.
2: Mm -hmm. Which, you know, and and the speed with which you were able to do that also indicates to me that you were uh, gifted. (laughs) (laughs) and that's another thing that doesn't surprise me about shannon at all
0: her her brain is very (laughs) unique the way that it it works and Mm -hmm. she's actually a very self-sufficient learner which is impressive but
1: this summer when i was in lebanon they spoke french there and within two days it started coming back and i was thinking in french my last few days there Mm-hmm. Um, like i had had a long conversation with a taxi driver. And when I was reflecting on that conversation in my mind, I was reflecting on it in French and you know, what I would have said differently if the conversation had continued and things like that. And what I would have asked him, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to think about this in English and then translate to French. It just went that way. So sorry to go on a segue, but I understand I what you're that. saying about that advice, Stephanie is have them play like that mm-hmm. would be much more valuable to that kindergarten student, have them play and learn with a peer and speak that English um, on a, on a comfortable level rather than sit there with the tutor and do a workbook. However, that's also the, the um, that's also a different register of the language, right? Because the English language learners still act, lack some academic vocabulary. Right? Yes. Correct. Absolutely. So there's like, yeah, I don't know, tell me the term, like there's conversational vocabulary versus academic vocabulary or. Right. There's BICS, basic interpersonal communication okay.
2: skills. Um, this was coined by Dr. Jim Cummins. Uh, University of Toronto. Um, And also then there's CALP, Cognitive Academic Language Proficiency, which needs to be explicitly taught. But the interpersonal comes kind of automatically and informally. And um, so kids can text and it makes teachers wonder, I hear them talking all the time, why don't they do their homework or this homework Mm. looks terrible? What happened? I know you can Well, they haven't gotten yet, or maybe they haven't been taught explicitly that type of language, or they haven't been accountable to produce particular vocabulary words, which points out to teachers some things they can do. Hold students accountable to produce these words this week on the board. They're provided and they're expected. Maybe there's a reward each time it pops up into the classroom milieu, or... um, The same thing with writing. Oh, there it is. Good. You know, underline. Like um, instead
1: of saying, I guess the student would say, I predict. Exactly. That Mm -hmm. type of,
2: of um, bump it up a bit. Let's elevate. Let's get academic. Let's not talk on the phone or text somebody a a friendly message. We're going to sound like professionals right now. And um, that's what I'm going to expect from you to raise our expectations in writing and speaking means we have to model it ourselves and also provide those cues about what are you talking about you know maybe work of of the previous year that got an a it'll help us to know as teachers exactly what are we uh, not just to recognize yeah that's it i recognize it when i see it but it's okay this is what i expect and then those who wouldn't automatically produce that level can see where the bar is and they
0: so stephanie i am not um as familiar with teaching students of different languages because I've been focused so much on working with kids specifically with dyslexia. So I, what I know is um, children with learning disabilities. I also know that there are lots of gaps and some things where there are gaps that you have to kind of plug. So I also do know that from some experience that I have with English language learners, Mm -hmm. sometimes they have different scores in their math, um, Uh, comprehension and they have some different scores in their, um, you know, literacy and, and kind of depends on background knowledge. Can you tell us a little bit about how you can um, ascertain what level the students are at and, and based on what, what their background knowledge is and, and, you know, how teachers can kind of plug those gaps or how to even figure out how to do that?
2: That is a tall order, isn't it, Mary? And, yes, but that's uh, what we're
0: expected to do as teachers. And it is is—it yes. is definitely complicated. And we have to rely, I think, on these tests to do so. But from mm-hmm. me, of course, too, it takes a lot of understanding and um, practice using these tests to kind of like understand the data.
2: Right. So what I want to say is it's also complicated by the fact that we have language learners who are twice exceptional, right? Right. Who also have perhaps a learning uh, challenge or any other other, uh, characteristic of special education may apply to them as well. Mm -hmm. And so it gets further complicated. I also want to say I don't think there is any single one test or any battery of tests that's going to give us a score that tells us what is the student's background knowledge as well as what's their level of English language proficiency. Those are going to be. Um...
0: That's how you get connected with your kiddo. You have to learn and understand them and make those connections so that you can understand where they're mm-hmm. coming from.
1: But the teachers will get the language proficiency score correct if they're mm-hmm. if they have the access score or they're in another state, and they'll get a language they'll get a language score in those four domains that you were mentioning earlier: writing, reading, speaking, listening. Exactly, and it'll be a score out of one to six, six being the closest to a native English. Imani,
2: learner. Uh, that, that would be a person who's a non-English learner. They have reached the pinnacle. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so we can focus on, perhaps for my purposes, one through five. And let us say we have a fourth grade student who is, uh, let's say the, t- the top score is five. And so f- one, two, three, four, five, those are the levels. That's a quick down and dirty lesson. So we ask ourselves, all right, here we have Jorge, a fourth grader, who has a reading score of two, which tells you, in need of assistance here for uh, developing reading, writing, also two, listening is four, speaking is five. Now, if we think about why would speaking be five and listening four, just roughly, those are the two high scores. They tend to develop first and they tend to be higher not always not always in my experience if you have a a chinese student who arrives who has been learning by rote and memorization and primarily through writing um the students that i've had would have higher writing scores than the listening and the speaking so again interpreting data knowing what led to that data Mm -hmm. but um, in that case that's our real fourth grader so I just want to real quickly go through a couple of, um, of scaffolds or supports that we could offer in an assignment. Now, these are going to all relate to the same fourth grade assignment. Mm-hmm. And um, just for the sake of conversation, uh, the assignment has to do with a significant, diverse individual in American history. Okay, so that's the topic. That's the standard. And they're all going to be working to the same standard that has been identified in the classroom. So for our level five students, what we're going to be applying is the writing score. So the writing score um, means we need to be very clear for all students what we're going to expect them to do in writing. So we can go to the can do descriptors and it will give us the student to performance descriptors of what they actually can do at a level five in fourth grade. And that's what I'm going to expect of all of my non ELs and students who are level four or five. I'm going to expect them to meet these expectations, which include writing text, varying in length, complexity and vocabulary mastery approach the range of grade level performance exhibited by English proficient peers. So very good cohesive writing. Um, and what they're going to do, again, in writing, we take the score that tested the actual area the assignment is in. So we take the writing score and, and we're expecting a five. The task is to write a one-page essay, including a topic sentence, date of birth, a variety of grade levels, sentence structures, targeted grade level vocabulary. And then you can specify the vocabulary, in this case, abolitionist, temperance, visionary, suffrage, etc. So Mm -hmm. you can see it's the same vocabulary um, for everyone at this level, at level five. Um, And they're going to include some targeted transition words in their writing. They're going to include four to five values or perspectives of an individual. But you can see how we've um, explicitly bullet pointed expectations of level five writing for this assignment. Makes it easy to evaluate for the teacher. And once you have one rubric such as this, you don't have to make it again. It's already made. It's wonderful. So again, we remind what's our standard. It's on a significant diverse individual in American history. Uh, And then... We list what scaffolds, what supports can we provide for these high-level students? What might they benefit from? So they might benefit from using print and online resources and an exemplar. What do we want the final product to look like? I believe it was Grant Wiggins uh, and backward lesson design that said, if you want a student to build a Volkswagen, you have to show them what a Volkswagen looks like. If they've never seen one, they're not going to dream it up intuitively. So that's fair. Okay, now to differentiate, we need to reduce the language load, that heavy carrying of words and structures that the students haven't developed to yet. But importantly, that their data shows they are in the range of being able to do. So bearing in mind the levels are all very broad, there's a very broad Uh, range of what we can expect from students here and any differentiation is not exactly a science it's the art of the teacher of how he or she can sift out a bit of the language load to make that task doable doable
0: for that student at that level i love how you are explaining that like How can the teacher take the language load away? Because I think that that is applicable to all teachers. Sometimes we do need to lift the language load because sometimes our auditory learners are really doing it. But if we could place in some more visual supports and scaffolds so that the students are not just so heavily relying on words that we are articulating, I think that makes Things so um, absolutely more crystal clear. And not to mention, we're dealing with a population of young students who have had so much more visual um, experiences than many of us adults ever had when it comes to learning. And so the, the combination of a visual and language at the same time is so powerful. So, so and yeah. Yes. I'll just share too. Um, I've been putting on the um, closed captioning for my daughters. My daughters are four and seven, and I think having closed captions and letting them see that words are generated when people are speaking, it's Mm -hmm. just another visual cue that gives them that that representation of what the word looks like, and. you know, it's not a, it's not a visual picture, but if it's on a TV show, I think that that's really impressive and, um, and a helpful, easy support that you can just do in your house easily.
2: Absolutely. So true. And you know, at Shannon's school, we've been working with students who have languages, first languages that do not use Latin script of English. Right, Right. And so wouldn't that be phenomenal for them who also need to learn the, how to, form the letters how to develop their manuscript and to understand the phonetic nature of of how that puts a word together why not it's a great support a simple turn on the switch right
0: yeah so how else do we reduce the language load i'm loving this so much that the phrase i'm going to just keep in my brain because students with autism often need to reduce the language load it's amazing
2: I think there are two steps to reducing language load. The first one is teachers are very clear on their own expectations of a student at that level. Yes. Bearing in mind, we don't want them to just get comfy at comfy at level two and three. We know they can do two. We need to push them to three. So how are we going to pull that out of a student? How are we going to hold them accountable in our communication of what they must produce, uh, whether it be oral or written, um,
0: so the expectations, yes,
2: yeah, exactly. So we, and then the answer to that question is how How do we do that? Um, then is to provide and increase our appropriate scaffolds and supports. Mm-hmm. So there is a foundation of more scaffold and support. The more scaffold and support you have, that means the lower the language level you might be working with. Mm-hmm. For example, if on this assignment, you're working with a level one student, you might use word uh, and phrase picture and matching cards. Um, and the assignment might even take on a different physical form. But the point is, it's still on the content standard. It's the same. And we ask, is this watering down the curriculum? No. no. this is the curriculum. And besides that, um, it meets the federal requirement to provide access of the curriculum to all students in the class. This gives that level one student access. Whereas if we just said, here is the level five test, go take it. We have drowned them. They are submerged. You've heard of immersion. This is submersion. This is (laughs) totally demoralizing and not effective so increase scaffolds and supports moving on up to level two we could also provide provide specific phrases or simple sentences because they're able to develop their stamina and lengthen their sentences and expression require certain transition words get them used to those in writing they could choose their own pictures from the internet or whatever resources you may have available that are appropriate Uh, at level three it's going to be now engaging with the actual same form um, which was writing a full page but now at level three we are beginning to be able to read grade level text we're beginning to be able to read uh, because we can manage simple sentences and beginning to branch into those complex sentences. So we can make the assignment adjusting our own expectations first by perhaps reducing the length of how how that assignment looks. And it's not always about length, but might also be about uh, providing a sample topic sentence and getting them to know the form. Mm -hmm. that you're expecting. And what facts are you requiring? Date of birth, uh, the particular vocabulary that you want mentioned in the writing. Um, You could provide discourse frames if they're masterful with a simple sentence. Provide a frame of a complex sentence so they can grow their sentences and put in a transition word. And we're beginning to go uh, with our explicit assignment related reduction of language load, we're able to teach them language at the same time through the same content.
1: Yeah. It's
2: two for one. It's very efficient. It's an excellent way that allows all teachers to be those language teachers. Take a seize, seize that teachable moment in class yeah. to teach a, a writing point or a vocabulary point or, you know. Um, something else that's going to support your student over all grades and all subjects really Uh, so in level three again we can continue to make the essay longer the writing product Um, mostly targeted grade level uh, vocabulary and again this could be specified Um, and this time maybe we're ramping up expectations we're including citations so students will need to do that and then we're up to level five which is the full-blown grade level assignment but through this process we're very clear on what we expect at grade three level i mean for for a, a grade of fully approved you you have an a that's good work we know what has to be there check 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 and then just reduce that um for students at those matching levels. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there are charts of those levels and what they look like easily accessible. They're available in various books and certainly on the WIDA site. And uh, it makes for an excellent support for an actually essential support for English learners.
1: And that's what Stephanie has been helping us do at the school and on a practical note, what the teachers have been doing is as they've provi- been providing those supports, they've been just noting it in their plans. And then when it comes to report card time, they're writing that in their report card comments that, you know, this mm-hmm. student score to be average with the support of sentence frames and word, you know, word bank and visual clues and things
2: right because this raises a lot of questions about grading that people have and so okay with this approach the student had differentiated assignment um does that mean i give them differentiated grading this engaged student in the grade level with grade level curriculum and doing it this way they were able to to perform at 85 percent. do they get a b yes they do Mm -hmm. You might want to include that, as Shannon said, this is an understood process for language learners. Certainly parents know of it. They also know what's required to have a non-noted B. Mm -hmm. But we have to decide, isn't that much better than having a student get a zero on the full-blown level five assignment? Mm-hmm. Or not even be able to engage, or under engage, or just become I, discouraged. I never able-
1: felt like I was dumbing down things or being unfair to the students. If when I was teaching second grade a few years ago and I gave those bees with those supports, mm-hmm. because like I knew through my experience that by the end of the year, they were going to be close to those bees without those supports, you know, right. that I could remove those scaffolds every nine weeks, you know, and hopefully increase the quality of their work without the scaffolds so that they were closer and closer to grade level work. If not by the end of my year, then I knew by the next school year, they'd be there. Sure. And, and you know, so the, the, they did earn that B, you know? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. But we do need to be, as you know, totally transparent in, in right. how the grading process evolves and what it, what it actually means. And it's very good. It's a very good thing to inform students about their test scores so that they know they are developing and they know that they have, yes, you have this one and it's a B um, as as you earned it. And with full language proficiency, this is what you might do differently in a conference with the student. So they know they are in charge here. They are working to that level. Um, they are understanding their work results in something concrete and, and parents also know as well.
1: I think at some point, if you build that metacognition with the students and reflection, they'll be like, you know what? I don't need the word bank this time. I got it. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. let me try it without it. Or Mm -hmm. can you look at my paper now and tell me, do you think I included enough vocabulary? Mm -hmm. Would you suggest me adding some more words to be able to get the score on the rubric? Excellent. I
0: think that is definitely, I'm glad that we're speaking about this because I think that's one of the most challenging areas that that teachers face is um, uh, justifying grading um, with these uh, accommodations and scaffolds in place Um, and accommodations I'm saying for special education. But in this case, it's also accommodations for English language learners and being comfortable enough to justify like, yeah, this is what we're doing. It's not, um, you don't need to be um, uncomfortable With that, it means that this is what the student needs. You're providing it. Absolutely. And it's documented.
2: Why do we have to justify? Think of this. I love Linda Franco's analogy, who said, um, you know, it it was a basketball game. And it was the final point they were behind by by two. And the guy came down the center and he's bouncing the ball and ooh, it's up in the air and he made a three-pointer and they won the game, yay. And then someone on the bleacher keeled over and fell off, fell down. Oh my gosh, what happened? Must be his heart. And someone ran for the defibrillator and applied the defibrillator and revived the fan and saved the day. Do you think that a person on the bleachers next to that man says, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. You need to justify the use of that defibrillator. And by the way, why don't I get the defibrillator? That defibrillator is expensive and I want it. Really? You don't need the defibrillator. You're not going to have it. But somebody for whom it makes all the difference of their civil right to learn to read their basic right as a human being to learn to read to have access to curriculum this is serious we need to do what we can do it is not dumbing down it is escorting them across a range of levels and getting them to proficiency without looking back we're on a mission and that's what we have to do we do not justify that we explain to you why we're doing it right (laughs)
0: <laughs> right no exactly i I felt so um I remember feeling very insecure my first couple of years because I didn't feel um that I had um, i I knew what I was doing was right, but it felt very uncomfortable to have to justify something that seemed so correct that I was doing that the students needed, and I felt like I didn't have um, a good way of explaining it, but I really appreciate this discussion because I think that that story is a very beautiful colored example of what you just do what students need and once they don't need it anymore we have a gradual release um and and then they pick up the rest that's the expectation for what we have for students here and um yeah just keep moving forward cuz <laughs> what else do we have to talk about
1: <laughs> so let's talk about what what are some of the scaffolds that you mentioned in just that example with Jorge's you know, abolitionist um, uh, project. So you would mention sentence frames and paragraph frames. You mentioned a word bank. You you mentioned um, visual picture matching cards with vocabulary terms. What are some other scaffolds that teachers could use in different subjects? Well, in different subjects. Or social studies. That was a socialized example. And I could see those easily being used in ELA as well or in science. Well, that's just it.
2: Because where we say uh, provide a simple sentence, well, it would be a sentence that had uh, academic science talk in it. You mm-hmm. know, the language of a of a um, what do you call it the the scientific method. So that that would be what was provided. These are all tailorable, and if I may say, um, on page, I'm looking at a differentiation book which um, I wrote with Dr. Shelley Fairbairn on differentiating for English learners K-12. It's called uh, Differentiating Instruction and Assessment for English Language Learners, A Guide for K-12 Teachers by Shelley Fairbairn and myself. I'm looking at um, page 256 and 7, which is a full page differentiation um, for an elementary school student. Now in this book, there are samples for middle school and high school as well. They um, give, first of all, what would be the expectation of the task for each level. And then underneath that, they show what is the scaffolding and suggested support for that level. Great. Um, And really there are, um, I wanna say those are like scenarios, scenarios of real students at all levels that anyone who's interested to explore further could find out about the impact of their cultural backgrounds and their individual student characteristics. Because we've talked about language, but we haven't talked about any of the personal things that happen with students. For example, has the student experienced trauma, loss, what what specifics, and I say those words so casually, but they impact students so wholly, right? Um, what impact and what supports can we provide additionally to that student? So there are templates for assessing, not in the way of a test, but getting to learn and know about that student and all that that student brings to the classroom in terms of the treasure chest of assets and in terms of the challenges as well Mm. and then we create every time as artistic teachers uh, nobody better than us to design how to reach that student um, sensitively and yet data-based and getting them on that language trajectory of moving to proficiency.
1: I was remembering um, Haley, I talked about her in the first season of the podcast, and she had had so much trauma that she was nonverbal um, in the entire classroom, except at the kidney table. That was the only time she would speak was when we were in the guided reading group. And so um, I never required her to do oral assignments in front of the whole class. You know, that just would have been such a trigger for her you know oh, and well, so absolutely. i allowed her to show me what she had learned in a more private way you know and didn't reflect her grade and um mm-hmm. just to follow up on that you know if y'all heard my uh, season 4 finale i went to the graduation of those students when they went to the fifth grade and haley got the reading award for her grade level so she continued to progress after being in my class. <laughs> and, and um, I went to there. her room and I was like do you remember me and she was still so shy she barely wanted to speak to me but oh, I said I cool. can tell you really like to read so she got the reading award and she said yeah so I think that um, having a private reading life has been you know been an outlet and an escape for her mm. so, what a gift
2: Shannon that's fantastic
1: yeah so right. that's such a gift. we have oh, to understand those students you know and their cultural experiences as well as their their language isn't that the truth
2: and and you know i i realize that this may or may not be particularly what we were talking about language levels but mm-hmm. since we're on the topic of how student characteristics so profoundly influence their instruction and informing us as teachers what we can do i want to point out um one more resource this one is a book entitled Engaging English Learners Through Access to Standards, a team-based approach to school-wide student achievement. This is a Corwin book in 2016 by Dr. Fairbairn and myself again. But on page 76 to 88, there uh, is one continuous table listing um, student characteristics such as age grade family background country of origin immigrant refugee migrant other status um, living situation cultural background practices etc 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 so there are numerous pages of this um, viewed first through the non-english learner lens and then through the english learner lens mm-hmm. what might this mean in this case to our instruction Um, And then on page 101 through 114, we have another multi-page table that is applying the English learner lens interpretation of student data. And this is, again, through the same list of student background characteristics that can help us understand and inform our instructional practices with a particular student. And, and try to tailor our instruction to engage them the best we can. So that may be a useful resource for,
1: for yeah. folks. I think that's fantastic. Really great. We will link, of course, all of those in our show notes and then our website. Yeah. Stephanie, do you have other um, suggestions that you like to share with teachers um, about ways they can um, differentiate for their students and start to look at the language load? of their assessments and the classroom activities that they have in their lesson plans.
2: You know, one of the things that I like to suggest is not just for teachers to do not a task for you teachers, but you know, I consider myself a teacher too, but the fun and the enjoyment that's involved has to do with um, kind of going outside one's comfort zone and make a home visit or make a list of cultural destinations within the community where your students inhabit, maybe a restaurant, maybe not, maybe it's a church service. Maybe it's
1: a, my grade level team went to the grocery store where all the students shopped. And that was really powerful. powerful.
2: It's so fun. It is so fun. And um, I had the pleasure of being in charge of mentoring new students in my school district where I was employed. And um, I had a class for them. And we all hopped in our cars. And I had a list of about 14 places. And we we went to all of them. We had a section where um, current students came in and they demonstrated some cultural practices. There was a pouring of tea leaves. There were... Mm-hmm. Um, pastries made by a lot of moms that were tried. Anyway, it's just getting to know and feel comfortable and developing those relationships, I think probably precedes what is more important than anything else. And the rest um, then will follow more easily. You know, I I believe that all will follow through the relationships.
0: I definitely agree with that. I think that that's, it's um, a unique Position um, that teachers actually can put themselves in to uh, mm-hmm. introduce themselves to different cultures, um, especially when they're working within populations that may live in a unique neighborhood situation or just unique living situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I'm so fascinated by this, and I have to say, one of the um, joys of living in a big city is that we do have. Um, a great number of people who come to the Atlanta area. And so when I was teaching, um, I taught in a really diverse neighborhood and we had 88 different cultural ethnic groups represented in a small elementary school of only 450 students. It was incredible. And, um, and the neighborhood experience of so many people living in such close proximity was just so unique. And so it's always something that I will cherish. And I did several home visits and I I just have goosebumps even just thinking back and the relationships that I still have with those students. And it's not very often that in many jobs you have a chance to um to approach people in this kind of unique way where parents trust you with their children because of the job that you have. And so anyway, I highly encourage it. And I do think that that's one of the joyful aspects of being a teacher. So.
1: And we think we have like Southern hospitality is like an art, but let me tell you oh. immigrant and refugee hospitality puts ours to shame. Like mm-hmm. I have never experienced the kind of welcome that I have when I've visited my students' homes.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that too. Uh, this has been such a joy to speak with you. Um, I am very curious to learn some more. Um, I have and- one question. I, yeah. Like
1: as I'm working, Stephanie, I probably asked you this at the school, but I want to ask you here on the podcast, like what should I be looking for? Like, for example, I have a lot of students won't say stuck, but I'll say stuck at the level three of writing Mm -hmm. on the access test. And they've been sort of at a three something for the last few years in a row. So Mm -hmm. how can I get them to that level four? What are some key milestones I'm looking for as I'm moving them? I loved how you said escorting them along a range of levels.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And kind of pushing too.
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) insist And hold accountable. How can Mm -hmm. I push them? Yes.
2: So great question, uh, Shannon. So you know where they're stuck and you know Mm -hmm. where they want to get to. So we're going to look at the can-do descriptors. And we are going to say, all right, what what are they supposedly doing uh, well? And they like it so well, they're not bumping up. And uh, level three is a typical place for folks to get stuck unless they get explicit instruction of a level four nature. And so we look at level four and say, okay, look at this. The sentence structures change here. So we need to think about, hmm, okay, so how can I get them reading some things with some more advanced structure? How can I hold them accountable in their writing? Um, Well, we can call it out. We can say these are the kinds of structures. And I know I saw sentence diagramming going on in one classroom. Well, Mm -hmm. that'll be a good place to incorporate that. And then that's a cross-curricular approach, which is like ideal. And then insist that they have in their next product of writing multiple, how many you insist upon, sentences using that structure. And that's going to get them thinking about it. I mean, that may help push them over. Um, That's not a one-size-fits-all, but that's one idea.
1: And if 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 I see that simple sentence structure, I call them out on it. Yes. Because and either provide a scaffold it. or show the model of that exemplar writing of member, this is what the sentences we're trying to get towards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need you to try to, mm-hmm. I need you to try on your own to increase the complexity of the sentence, but if not, I'm here to support you. And mm-hmm. I have a couple ideas of ways you can do that in the subject and the predicate, but I'm going to let you try it first.
2: Love it. Absolutely. Do love that because it's comfy to be at the the simpler sentence in the short staccato pronunciations there so yeah it's okay talk longer you know some t- some students are more shy and they they like to just kind of shut it off as soon as possible before they make a mistake there's more risk right so that's hard. we're
1: also um we notice as a as a staff that it also you know when we looked at those can do descriptors at the higher levels um, not only is it sentence structure but it's also amount of academic vocabulary used oh yes so okay. i feel like i need to do some personal growth in that, and personal development in that aspect to really understand what does academic vocabulary look like in four, fourth grade versus the middle school students that are working. And, mm-hmm. um,
2: and one other idea that just occurred to me is make sure to call out the questions at the ends of chapters, if there are that type of text in use, because some of those are very um, arcanely phrased. And so to make clear the meanings and maybe Work with, okay, what might be another way to ask this question? It means the same thing as um, even, even simple ones, like all of the following, except all of the following, except it seems like it goes forward and then it goes backwards. What? <laughs> but um, yeah, call all of those out. And uh, maybe students can write their own questions in a similar uh, way to become more comfortable with those. But they're, they, they are a language of their own.
1: You know, we talked about relationships with the parents, but all of this requires relationship with the students and a level of trust, you know, like we have to build that level of trust with our students that they will tell us when they don't understand what a word means and that they know that we aren't going to shame them and that it's a safe place with us and that we need to have open line of communication where you tell me what word you don't understand. You tell me when you don't understand a phrase, you feel comfortable enough asking me a question so that I can Help get you to the next level.
0: I have always um, really embraced that the smartest people ask the best questions. And and that's something that became kind of a mantra in our room, because it's, I do believe that wholeheartedly in every aspect. You don't want to be the one who's asking the same question over and over, and you don't want to ask something that's been, um, you know, repeated, But if you are asking a genuine question because you're attentive and you still are just trying to clarify, that is probably, you're probably not the only person in the room doing that. And I think explicitly sharing that with kids breaks down the barriers of, um, you know, making that feel like a mistake where it's not a mistake. It's encouraged when you are, when you're clarifying that's
1: learning. Or if they're not comfortable doing it in the whole group that you've, you've, you know, communicate with that English language learner and let them know, hey, you can write me a note or speak to me in a transition, you know, on your way to specials that you can ask me about this.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. All good ideas.
0: Great. Um, I am curious uh, if you have any additional resources that you'd like to share, because I think that this topic is just fascinating and so important. So, um, what other resources do you think that we, sh- we should share with our readers or listeners? And while
1: you're thinking of it, I'll say everything mm-hmm. she's mentioned so far, I've taken notes on and we will be putting them in the um, show notes on the website. Yeah. So don't worry. I've got you guys.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Very good. Well, maybe there is, uh, one more I would mention,
2: which is, uh, it's also a book, which is Powerful Practices for Supporting English Learners, mm. Elevating Diverse Assets and Identities. Seems like I always have a long title, right? <laughs> Good. No, that's all right. Um, I was delighted to uh, be a co-author with Paula Marcus, who was director of the Toronto ESL program, which I'm, I always tell people she doesn't, but I do, that it's the largest ESL program in the world.
1: Hmm.
2: and um, Fern Westernoff who is a a speech language pathologist but she dealt with so many English learners who were being referred for those issues she earned her PhD in ESL in TESOL and um, she works in that capacity so it's a wonderful uh, cross professional collaboration but this one is a Corwin book 2021 it was written Mm -hmm. over the pandemic and Mm -hmm. it does have some ideas that teachers might find useful for supporting language learners in the classroom.
0: I love that you have collaborated with a speech pathologist. I think that they are so... They're not undervalued because I think people do see their value, but I am always astonished and amazed at um, the experience and the wealth of knowledge that they bring.
1: No, I'm so so jealous they got to take linguistics and we didn't. I know.
0: (laughs) I, I wish I I wish I could go back to myself when I was just starting off and and remind myself how important that. Um, aspect would be later as I was teaching kids to read. So I always partnered with the speech pathologist at the school because I found that they had just a wealth of information that I was always really um, excited and grateful to share so it's true. And I bet they found that you had the same in reverse for them. Yeah. Um, it was a great, it's a it, yeah. So fantastic. If you haven't partnered, you partner with the custodial staff at the school, yes. the secretary at the school, and don't forget about the speech pathologist. Well, because
1: we talk about, you know, <laughs> like we've said this before that it's speech to print. And so yes. we need to go to the speech pathologist to learn more about yes. speech to then help our students translate it to the print. And I think you'll Writing. find
2: some- SLP perspective in this book as well, um, that, that folks who are in that field and other related fields who are not the ESL teacher Mm -hmm. might find, um, relevant to them as, as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, I also partnered with our ESL teacher because I found that when I needed specifically in my, um, resource room, um, I needed a lot of visuals and the, esl teacher was always so such a fantastic resource to use visuals and um so don't forget about that too that's Special right you know teacher. what that's
2: called i mean in, in what i like to call it is reciprocal mentoring
0: mm, and that's for, you know, fantastic yeah so yes. glad to
2: hear you're doing it mary
0: no, I love that too. And I think that's that's a, a bit of what Shannon and I um, really encourage here at the Reading Teachers lounge. We like to reach out to a number of people because if you are in your school's teachers lounge, we hope that you are having these good conversations about education and what um, you know amazing things are happening in your classroom. And um, you know sometimes the, the teacher's lounge gets a bad rap been there too. But, um, but for us, we want it to be a casual conversation where we share these, um, these, these bits of information. So we so appreciate you being on.
1: I'll share Uh, another conversation real quick. um, Stephanie stepped into my teacher's lounge Mm -hmm. in my office this week. And I was talking to her about that eighth grader. And I was telling her that I was sharing the vowel sounds and the syllable patterns with that eighth grader. And Stephanie was like, well, how can we, you know, reciprocal mentorship, how can we add more language to this, these phonics lessons? And so she was looking at my resource shelves and I have these, I mean, they're labeled what great, what was it age three to five? They were all these little picture cards of community helpers and animals and the school things and things like that. It was some resources I got from Lakeshore. And Stephanie yeah. said, how could we use these with the eighth grader? And I went through them and I realized that I, I could sort them by s- vowel sound, like the R-controlled oh. words versus the vowel team words and things like that. And so I'm working on the short vowel sounds. And so I went through those, The I sorted all of them by vowel sounds and I pulled out the short vowel ones since that's what I'm working on with the student. And I went through the known ones and the unknown ones. And luckily these cards had the Spanish on the background. So I was able to say the Spanish word. Um, and help her remember it. And then I had her sound out the English word of the, other, and I could correct her vowel pronunciation at that time. And yeah. then Stephanie said, okay, well, mm-hmm. let's elevate it some more and let's have her write a sentence with the word in Spanish. And she's so comfortable with that. And then let's have her write the same sentence in, in English.
0: Did. Sure.
1: And then, Stephanie, what I could do is I could even have her, if it's probably a simple sentence, okay, let's write a more complex sentence. Can you write a complex sentence in Spanish and then a complex sentence in English, right?
2: Oh, you're driving her right to the top. Love it. So she's taken, a. it says three-year-old on the box. Maybe we just put a piece of tape over that. Sure. Uh, (laughs) Because it's got the pictures. We need the concrete thing to tie those uh, morphemes and phonemes to to make it meaningful.
1: Well, like like one of the words was shopping basket. And she knew shopping, but she didn't know basket. Mm. And so and then I was helped her, you know, she was able to sound out basket. And so I'm really there's so many sentences she could write about putting things in a shopping basket. She could almost write a whole story about it, you know. Mhm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Way to scaffold. That's it. One simple Scaffold, and whoa, you're off to the races! And I took
1: a phonics lesson and made it a vocabulary lesson and a writing activity as well. Wow! And that's through conversation with you. So thank I you for, for for leading me in that. And I know you'll continue to do that with me. So we are so appreciative that you joined us. Um, if other teachers want to maybe get to know you better or find you, is there anywhere they can find you online?
2: Um, I will provide my uh, email address.
1: That's but kind they, of you. Yeah,
2: that, that, that's the best way to get in touch with me.
1: And you're going to be on some other podcasts as well upcoming, correct?
2: Yes, as a matter of fact, if anyone's familiar with Mr. Tan Win, that's H-U-Y-N-H, who is a profound ESL proponent, teacher, guru, teaching in Thailand. He has um, an ELL podcast where he is curating various authors experts um professors researchers i'm not sure of the total number of archive podcasts that he has i I had
1: not been aware of him until you mentioned him to me but i I saw his he has episode listed to the hundred something yes
2: right and i believe number 100 is mary ellen vote with him Um, on Reading and Language Learners, which is an excellent podcast, I must say. An historical perspective of the research of reading and how it's developed. She herself was president of uh, IRA, and she has a fantastic insight into that. So recommend that. But I will have a podcast um, airing um, along with uh, my colleague, Shelley Fairbairn, on November 25th. So, it'll be posted then and one more in December, which the date hasn't been shared yet, but it will be about the most recent book with Corwin, The Powerful Practices with ELs. DL's really? co authors. So, thanks for asking, Shannon.
0: We'd love to share that for you as well. That sounds great. Yes, we'll
1: add those to the yeah. show notes um, the ones that are already available and then the ones when they come out. Get we'll to them. There.
0: Yeah. Great. Cool. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. And um, I have to say, I really respect you as a teacher. I could see the warmth that you bring um, to each classroom that you would be in. You're you're a very natural teacher and it's been, you've, you've taught so much today. So thank you very much.
2: Oh, thank you both so much for having me. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Shannon.